You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Mark Thornton, Miranda, New Zealand. Chapter 15 A Thousand Years into the Future. 1930 to 2930. A thousand years in three hours. It was sufficiently slow travelling so that Larry could see from the cage window the actual detailed flow of movement, the changing outline of material objects around him. There had been the open country of revolutionary times when this space was north of the city. It was a grey ghostly landscape of trees and the road and the shadowy outlines of the Atwood house five hundred feet away. Larry saw the road widen. The fence suddenly was gone. The trees were suddenly gone. The shapes of houses were constantly appearing, then melting down again, with others constantly rearing up to take their places, and always there were more houses and larger, more enduring ones. And then the Atwood house suddenly melted. A second or two, and all evidence of it and the trees about it were gone. There was no road. It was a city street now, and it had widened so that the cage was poised near the middle of it, and presently the houses were set solid along its borders. At 1910 Larry began to recognise the contour of the buildings, the antiquated pattern place, but the flowing, changing outlines adjusted themselves constantly to a more familiar form. The new apartment house, down the block in which Larry and I lived, rose and assembled itself like a materialising spectre, a wink or two of Larry's eyelids, and it was there. He recalled the months of its construction. The cage, with Larry as a passenger, could not have stopped in these years. He realised it now. There was a nameless feeling, a repulsion against stopping. It was indescribable, but he was aware of it. He had lived these years once, and they were forbidden to him again. The cage was still in its starting acceleration. They swept through the year 1935, and then Larry was indefinably aware that the forbidden area had passed. They went through those few days of June 1935, during which Tew's robots had devastated the city, but it was too brief an action to make a mark that Larry could see. It left a few very transitory marks, however. Larry noticed that along the uneven line of ghostly rooftops blobs of emptiness had appeared. He saw a short distance away that several of the houses had melted down into ragged, tumbled heaps. These were where the bombs had struck, dropped by the government planes in an endeavour to wreck the two house from which the robots were appearing. But the ragged, broken areas were filled in a second, almost as soon as Larry realised they were there, and newer and larger buildings than before appeared. At sight of all this he murmured to Tina, "'Something has happened here. I wonder what. He chanced to turn, and saw that Tew was regarding him very queerly, but in a moment he forgot it in the wonders of the passage into his future. This growing, expanding city! It had seemed a giant to Larry in 1935, especially after he had compared it to what it was in 1777, but now, in 1950, and beyond to the turn of the century, he stood amazed at the enormity of the shadowy structures rearing their spectral towers around him. For some years Patton Place, a backward section, held its general form. Then, abruptly, the city engulfed it. Larry saw monstrous buildings of steel and masonry rising a thousand feet above him. For an instant, as they were being built, he saw their skeleton outlines, and then they were complete. 
yet they were not enduring, for in every flowing detail they kept changing. An overhead sidewalk went like a balcony along what had been Patton Place. Bridges and archways spanned the street. Then there came a triple bank of overhead roadways. A distance away, a hundred feet above the ground, the shadowy form of what seemed a monorail structure showed for a moment. It endured for what might have been a hundred years, and then it was gone. This monstrous city! By 2030 there was a vast network of traffic levels over what had been a street. It was an arcade now, opened at the top near the cage, but further away Larry saw where the giant buildings had flowed and mingled over it, with the viaducts, spider-bridges, and pedestrian levels plunging into tunnels to pierce through them. And high overhead, where the little sky which was left still showed, Larry saw the still higher outlines of a structure which quite evidently was a huge aerial landing-stage for airliners. It was an incredible city! There were spots of enduring light around Larry now. The city lights, which for months and years shone here unchanged, the cage was no longer outdoors. The street which had become an open arcade was now wholly closed. A roof was overhead, a city roof, to shut out the inclement weather. There was artificial light and air and weather down here, and up on the roof additional space for the city's teeming activities. Larry could see only a shadowy narrow vista here indoors, but his imagination supplied visions of what the monstrous incredible city must be. There was a roof, perhaps, over all Manhattan. Bridges and viaducts would span to the great steel and stone structures across the rivers, so that water must seem to be in a canyon far underground. There would be a cellar to this city, incredibly intricate, with conduits of wires and drainage pipes, and on the roof rain or snow would fall unnoticed by the millions of workers. Children born here in poverty might never yet have seen the blue sky and the sunlight, or know that grass was green and lush and redolent when moist with morning dew. Larry fancied this now to be the climax of city-building here on earth. The city was a monster now, unmanageable, threatening to destroy the humans who had created it. He tried to envisage the world, the great nations, other cities like this one. Freight transportation would go by rail and under seas, doubtless, and all the passengers by air. Tina, with her knowledge of history, could sketch the events. The Yellow War, the white races against the Orientals, was over by the year 2000. The three great nations were organized in another half-century, the white, the yellow, and the black. By the year 2000, the ancient dirigibles had proven impractical, and great airliners of the plane type were encircling the earth. New motors, wing spreads, and a myriad devices made navigation of the upper altitudes possible. At a hundred thousand feet, upon all the great circle routes, liners were rushing at nearly a thousand miles an hour. They would halt at intervals to allow helicopter tenders to come up to transfer descending passengers. Then the etheric wave-thrust principle was discovered. By 2500 A.D., man was voyaging out into space, and interplanetary travel began. This brought new problems. A rush of new millions of humans to live upon our Earth, new wars, new commerce in peacetimes, new ideas, new scientific knowledge. By 2500, 
the city around Larry must have reached its height. It stayed there a half-century, and then it began coming down. Its degeneration was slow in the beginning. First there might have been a hole in the arcade which was not repaired. Then others would appear, as the neglect spread. The population left. The great buildings of metal and stone, so solidly appearing to the brief lifetime of a single individual, were impermanent over the centuries. By 2600 the gigantic ghosts had all melted down. They lay in a shadowy pile, burying the speeding cage. There was no stopping here. There was no space unoccupied in which they could stop. Larry could see only the tangled spectres of broken, rusting, rotting metal and stone. He wondered what could have done it. A storm of nature? Or had mankind strangely turned decadent and rushed back in a hundred years or so to savagery? It could not have been the latter, because very soon the ruins were moving away. The people were clearing the city site for something new. For fifty years it went on. Tina explained it. The age of steam had started the great city of New York, and others like it, into its monstrous congestion of human activity. There was steam for power, and steam for slow transportation by railroads and surface ships. Then the conquest of the air, and the transportation of power by electricity, gradually changed things. But man was slow to realize his possibilities. Even in 1930, all the new elements existed, but the great cities grew monstrous of their own momentum. Business went to the cities because the people were there, workers flocked in because the work was there to call them. But soon the time came when the monster city was too unwieldy. The traffic, the drainage, the water supply could not cope with conditions. Still, man struggled on. The workers were mere automatons pallid attendants of machinery, people living in a world of beauty who never had seen it, who knew of nothing but the city arcades where the sun never shone and where amusements were as artificial as the light and air. Then man awakened to his folly. Disease broke out in New York City in 2551, and in a month swept eight million people into death. The cities were proclaimed impractical unsafe, and suddenly people realized how greatly they hated the city, how strangely beautiful the world could be in the fashion God created it. There was, over the next fifty years, an exodus to the rural sections. Food was produced more cheaply, largely because it was produced more abundantly. Man found his wants suddenly simplified. And business found that concentration was unnecessary. The telephone and television made personal contacts not needed. The aircraft, the high-speed auto-trucks over modern speedways. The aeroplane-motored monorails, the rocket trains, all these shortened distance. And, most important of all, the transportation of electrical energy from great central power companies made small industrial units practical, even upon remote farms. The age of electricity came into its own. The cities were doomed. Larry saw, through... 2600 and 2700 A.D., a new form of civilization rising around him. At first it seemed a queer combination of the old-fashioned village and a strange modernism. There were, here upon Manhattan Island, metal houses, 
widely spaced in gardens, and electrically powered factories of unfamiliar aspect. Overhead were skeleton structures, like landing stages, and across the further distance was the fleeting transitory wraith of a monorail air road. Along the river banks were giant docks for surface vessels and subsea freighters. There was a little concentration here, but not much. Man had learned his lesson. This was a new era. Man was striving really to play as well as work, but the work had to be done. With the constant development of mechanical devices, there was always a new machine devised to help the operation of its fellow, and over it all was the hand of the human, until suddenly the worker found that he was no more than an attendant upon an inanimate thing which did everything more skilfully than he could do it. Thus came the idea of the robot, something to attend, to oversee, to operate machines. In Larry's time it had already begun with a myriad devices of automatic control. In Tina's time world it reached its ultimate and diabolical development. At 2,900 Larry saw, 500 feet to the east, the walls of a long low laboratory rising. The other cage, which was in 1777, was in Major Atwood's garden, and in 1935 was in the backyard of the Chew House on Beckman Place, was housed now, in 2930, in a room of this laboratory. At 2905, with the vehicle slowing for its stopping, Tina gestured towards the walls of her palace, whose shadowy forms were rising close at hand. Then the palace garden grew and flourished, and Larry saw that this cage he was in was set within this garden. "'We're almost there, Larry,' she said. "'Yes,' he answered. An emotion gripped him. "'Tina, your world! Why, it's so strange! But you're not strange. Am I not, Larry?' He smiled at her. He felt like showing her again that the ancient custom of kissing was not wholly meaningless, but Tew was regarding them. "'I was comparing,' said Larry, "'that girl, Mary Atwood, from the year 1777, and you. You are so different in looks, in dress, but you are just girls.' She laughed. "'The world changes, Larry, but not human nature.' "'Ready?' called Tew. "'We are here, Tina.' "'Yes, Tew. You have the dial set for the proper night and hour?' "'Of course. I make no mistake. Did I not invent these dials?' cage slackened through a day of sunlight, plunged into night, and slid to its soundless reeling halt. Tina drew Larry to the door and opened it upon a fragrant garden, somnolently drowsing in the moonlight. "'This is my world, Larry,' she said, "'and here is my home.' Tew was with them as they left the cage. He said, "'This is the tri-night hour of the very night you left here, "'Princess Tina, you see, I calculated correctly.' "'Where did you leave Hal and the two visitors?' she demanded. "'Here, right here.' Across the garden Larry saw three dark forms coming forward. They were three small robots of about Tina's stature, domestic servants of the palace. They crowded up, crying, "'Master Chu! Princess!' "'What is it?' Chu asked. 
the hollow voices echoed with excitement as one of them said master chew there has been murder here we have dared tell no one but you or the princess oh is murdered larry chanced to see chew's astonished face and in the horror of the moment a feeling came to larry that chew was acting unnaturally he forgot it at once but later he was to recall it forcibly and to realize that the treacherous chew had planned this with these robots master chew hall is murdered Miguel escaped and murdered Hal, and took the body away with him. Larry was stricken dumb. Chew seized the little robot by his metal shoulders. Liar! What do you mean? Tina gasped. Where are our visitors? The young man and the girl. Miguel took them. Where? Tina demanded. We don't know. We think very far down in the caverns of machinery. Miguel said he was going to feed them to the machines. End of chapter 15